Hola. The following episode was recorded both in English and Spanish. This is the English version. Si quieres escuchar la versión en español, ve a la fuente de contenido del podcast, nuestro sitio web de engineeringprofessor.org o visita nuestro canal de YouTube para accesar el video de esta entrevista con subtítulos en ambos idiomas. Google the word science in 11 of the most spoken languages in the world. And even when you normalize by number of native speakers, you will see that English is like by far and away, you see the most results. And so this points to the fact that English is overrepresented in both formal scientific communication and more informal means like in social media, in the news and things like that. That's Dr. Ana Maria Porras, a trailblazing biomedical engineer specializing in tissue microbe interactions. She will be discussing with us today her innovative work on the intricate balance of blending science with art and the significance of bilingual scientific communication. Saludos a todos. I am Cindy Rivera Jimenez, and this is the Engineering Professor Speaks Education podcast. In this bilingual show, we will explore together the art, science, and politics of being an effective engineering educator. In our first episode ever, I am pleased to share this space with Dr. Ana Maria Porras, an assistant professor in biomedical engineering at the University of Florida. Dr. Porras has been one of my number one supports for creating this podcast, and I will forever be grateful for her honest feedback and for sharing her expertise. Having started her journey in biomedical engineering with a bachelor's degree from the University of Texas at Austin, Dr. Porras further expanded her horizon with both a master's and a PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her determination for discovery didn't stop there. She went on to deepen her expertise during a prestigious presidential postdoctoral fellowship at Cornell University. As the principal investigator of the pioneering Tissue Microbe Interactions Lab, Dr. Porras investigates the intricate connections between microbes and human cells by exploring the hidden roles the human extracellular matrix plays in disease and their relationship to the microbiome and global health. Yet. What makes her truly stand out is her unique blend of science and artistry. An adept science artist, Dr. Porras seamlessly fuses her deep scientific understanding with an innate artistic touch. Her talent in presenting intricate scientific narratives in multilingual and accessible way makes her a shiny star in science communication. In addition to her outstanding leadership in biomedical engineering research, Only a handful of engineering professors can claim to have served as science experts on panels at Comic-Con conventions. If you're a science fiction fan like me, how cool is that? And I'm so happy to have her here. So buckle up as we dive into a conversation built with insights, arts, and the passion for bilingual science education with Dr. Ana Maria Porras. So... Welcome, Ana, to the podcast where las profes de Ingeniería speak education. Hi, Cynthia. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here today. Let's start the conversation by uh, knowing exactly who you are. I know that the bio kind of explained briefly your trajectory, but can you tell us how do you became an engineering professor and what was your journey to get here where you are? Yeah, I think my journey started in a somewhat unique way. Um, well, I don't think of it as unique, but since arriving in college, I realized it's unique um, because both of my parents were engineering professors too. And so I grew up in a household where talking about university politics, classrooms, things like that were normal. And I also thought, Again, right? In Colombia, the word for teacher and professor is the same word. So for me, my parents were teachers in my mind, a very normal profession. And so I already grew up kind of with that inception in my brain that 
being a professor was like a normal, was a normal thing to do, a normal thing to be. And also my mom was an engineer. So I just grew up with a really good role model of women in engineering. A lot of my older cousins are engineers. So I always contemplated engineering as an option. Nonetheless, I didn't know what I wanted to study when I finished high school. And it wasn't until my mom visited another school, learned that they had bioengineering And that was the first time in my entire life that I learned that you could do engineering and also work on things that are alive and also merge that with biology. And so that, you know, that kind of started my journey. And it also started my journey in becoming an immigrant, because at the time in Colombia, there weren't very many programs that um, had biomedical engineering as as a career. And so I left Colombia to go to school in the at the University of Texas for that reason if i had studied something else i probably or like a, or a different engineering i probably would have stayed in my home country and so then once i arrived in texas i learned a little bit more about the branch of engineering that i do tissue engineering i kind of fell in love with that and then continued on in my trajectory i also was a tutor when i was at ut I tutored at the learning center for four years, and that's where it reinforced something that I already kind of knew from high school. My dad always says I probably inherited this from my mom, but I love to teach. Um, And my mom was the director of the Center for the Development of Teaching up until she retired. And so um, I've always loved to teach, and teaching is the main thing. When I finished college, I was like, I want to be a professor at a university primarily because I wanted to teach. I also like doing research. And I think this still holds true for me, that um, the parts that I enjoy more are the teaching, the mentoring. The research is, of course, also cool, but um, I'm kind of more in tune with the education side of our job than the research side of our job at a personal level. And so then I got my PhD and then eventually went on to, we can explore that later, went on to do a postdoc, where I, again, continue to expand my definition of where you can do education and how you can do education. And all of that eventually culminated into me making it here um, as a professor. Your research is super cool. Uh, It's global health, it's like very new things in biomedical engineering related to microbes. Can you quickly summarize uh, what is your current area of research? Yeah, so in my lab, we do tissue engineering, meaning we create the tissues in the lab. Most people in tissue engineering, what they're trying to do is then take those tissues and put them inside of a patient. So for example, right now you could actually get in the clinic um, artificial skin, for example. We do it a little bit differently. We create those tissues, but then we make them diseased on purpose. And the idea behind that is that that way we can study how and why disease happens a little bit faster than you normally would growing cells on plastic that has nothing to do with what our bodies look like. And that way we also um, don't need to use as many animals in our research. So it's kind of bridging that gap and accelerating how we understand disease. And then we apply those models more specifically, and this is a lot of stuff that I borrowed from my postdoc work, into to study how human tissues interact with microorganisms. Um, And as you said, I pull in kind of my experience in being from Colombia and my desire to collaborate with people from Latin America in a couple of different ways. So we study good microbes. So that means the microbes that live inside of your gut or the gut microbiome. So we study those bacteria, how they interact with the intestines and if they produce inflammation or not. And we are slowly building collaborations so that we can not only study the microbiomes of people who live here in the United States, but also a microbiome of people who live in Latin America. And then the other parts of my lab studies these human microbe interactions, but in the context of bad microbes. So we also study tropical parasitic infections, kind of the kind we see a lot in Latin America, maybe less so in the U.S., but with climate change, we'll also start seeing those more. And it's really interesting, uh, Anna, how your positionality, who you are as a person and as in your career, has actually defined your current pathway as researcher. And I, I mentioned a lot in qualitative research, particularly, that we need to have that positionality. I'm going to put in the show notes uh, an article related to that by Seculis and collaborators. But there is positionality when you conduct 
traditional or what we call disciplinary research, right? You need, you are the one that controls the research questions that you ask, the populations, the topics, the methodology. Do you think that has influenced a lot who you are in this line of uh, research? Yes, I think so, 100%. Um, that is something that is really important to me. It's kind of merging my identity and who I am and the things I think that are important and where I think I can make the most impact. But I will say that wasn't always the case. So when I was an undergraduate student, a graduate student, I think I was more concentrated on doing cool science. What are other people interested in? And it wasn't until I started kind of thinking longer term, like, oh, wow, when I have my own lab, if and when I have my own lab, that's kind of what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. So I stopped and thought, okay, what is it that I could see myself doing for a long, long period of time? And leading like a whole team on it, it has to be really something that I'm very passionate about. And it was really the time in my postdoc at Cornell University that allowed me that space to really think about, okay, what kinds of things am I really good at? What kinds of things do I think I could have the most impact in? I mean, some of the stuff we study, like, for example, we study Leishmaniasis, which is a neglected tropical disease, and it's neglected, meaning it doesn't get a lot of attention or money. So uh, we're never going to get rich off of what we're doing. But it is it is the type of thing that impacts people in Colombia, where I'm from, and in Latin America and in tropical regions of the world. And so it's important to me. It's important to people who look like me. And so, yeah, and, and I wish we did more of that. I, I know in other disciplines, in engineering education, this is and in education in general, this is more common in the social sciences, kind of stating your positionality. But I, I wish people told us more why, what, like, why are you studying why, what you study? Sometimes I have colleagues where later I'm like, oh, I study cancer because I had, I'm a survivor 20 years ago. And I'm like, what? I've known you for years and I'm only now learning that. I wish we did that more. Yeah. And those reflections are really important. And one intention of this podcast is not to only tailor the information for the engineer educators, scholars. It's actually to have a conversation, you know, as engineering professors about education and education, you know, you as a disciplinary researcher, you can be very dedicated to create programs and spaces where you can educate your students or your peers. So in that line, what is your teaching and mentoring philosophy and how your research, your current research, influence the values and principles of that philosophy? Yeah, so I would say a few things are really important. I think in line with what I was just saying about things I learned at Cornell, the other thing I learned a lot about is the importance of interdisciplinarity. So that is something that I try to emphasize a lot in my mentoring, in my lab, and in class. So in my classes, I try to bring in examples from a bunch of different disciplines. For example, in my graduate elective, students also develop skills in scientific communication, um, because our world, like it used to be that you were one thing, but the truth is in the modern world, everybody is a little bit of everything. And the problems we're trying to solve are so complex that it really needs a lot of flexibility. The other thing I personally believe strongly, especially because I work in higher education, is I like to treat all my students as individuals and as adults. So as people who can make decisions, right? And they can, they know what the consequences are. <laughs> and so... Right. I believe strongly in students that are learning. So there's always I'm always thinking about their objectives. What are they going to learn? Right. Um, and then sometimes I do think, right, we they can choose if they want to learn these things or not. They are adults. They can make decisions, but then they also have to face consequences um, and then keeping an open communication. So I am the type of professor who right? sometimes I'm vulnerable with my students. Um, that's, of course, sometimes hard to balance when you are a person of color, especially in the context of the United States, where like being vulnerable can be also perceived as a weakness. But I, I do like to be flexible and communicate, keep those lines of communication open with both my mentees and the students in my classroom. And I think especially this last semester that I where I taught like 90 sophomores, uh, keeping those communication lines open was really important. There were times when they were like, professor, we have six exams this week. Could we please change this deadline? And I, but I don't think if I had invested 
in developing those relationships and communicating, I don't think they would have felt comfortable bringing that up to me. So that's also something that's important to me. Besides all of the amazing research that you have, and I will put a link on the show notes on your uh, Google Scholar page, but I really want to talk about education. And there's an, a, part, a particular effort that you have been involved related to democratizing access to scientific information in multiple languages. You have a paper that has been cited 73 times, like 30,000 views, 3,000 downloads. I mean, is an impressive outreach, right, for this uh, paper. So the paper is with collaborators and it's called Science Communication in Multiple Languages is Critical to Its Effectiveness. Uh, and this was published in Frontiers in Communication. So before I ask you the first question, I want to tell the audience that the reason why you are my first person that I interview in this new podcast is because of this work that you have done. And you not only publish this work, but you are walking the walk, right? So, you know, for me to I conceptualized this podcast in 2016 when I became an engineering professor, but I was stuck because I didn't know if I could effectively communicate in English because this is not my first language, but I was losing my Spanish. So I was afraid to speak in Spanish because I use a lot of my English in my Spanish now. And that is called code switching. And I'm going to put a little bit of information on what that means, uh, code switching and bilingual people, multilingual people. After reading your paper and reading another paper by Gaho, I'm going to also put a, a show note there. I realized that I didn't need to like limit myself in terms of this guest speakers. And I'm exploring and building this bilingual space as it is, uh, as if the speaker wants to be their true self and speak in Spanish and in English, so be it. The conversations are different. It is fine, even though the questions are the same. And I think that the idea of the idea is that we live in a bilingual world and people do not always understand what it means. And, you know, for us, we we communicate different things in different ways in both languages, even though the questions are the same. I mean, it has uh, definitely impacted. This is like a metric for you. It has impacted me and hopefully will impact other people. So can you tell me uh, what motivated you to work on this topic of democratizing access to scientific communication what democratizing means and and what was your inspiration? Yeah, that's these these are all great points. Okay, so democratizing access to scientific information basically means kind of lowering those barriers of access to scientific content, right? And this can take I feel like different people will interpret it different ways, right? I personally work a lot on social media because I think right now everybody, right, is walking around with their phone in their pockets. Everybody has social media accounts. Um, and I, by everybody, I literally mean the whole world. Like there are studies out there that show a lot of people, billions of people in the world are on Instagram, on TikTok, on whatever. Um, and so you can think of it also as like reaching more people or maybe reaching people in a way where they can understand science better. Um, this, in theory, is part of the mission of scientific communication. Um, and Let's see. Ooh, that was a good question. What inspired me to do it? I think when I started doing science, SciComm, science communication in 2018, I really, it really was more like I've always loved communicating things. Like when I did my individual development plan in as a graduate student, one of the things that it brought up, up as a potential career for me was as a science writer. And so ever since that came up, I know, ever since that came up, I was like really intrigued by this idea. I even like had informational interviews with science editors. Um, I still think that's a career I would probably enjoy. So I was kind of like intrigued by this idea of communication. Um, and I just didn't pursue it further in my PhD. I like had too much stuff going on. Um, and then I... I really started doing science communication. I had been thinking about it. Um, and then we went to a USA National Science and Engineering Festival with a bunch of other people who did microbiome research at Cornell. You have to realize that when you study microbes, by definition, these are living things that you cannot see. So we were in this huge festival. There were people from Discovery, NASA, like astronaut suits, shark tanks, all this stuff. And we were like, okay, how are we going to attract people to our booth if we're competing against like astronaut suits and you cannot see what we study? So I suggested, oh, I'll bring in some crochet bacteria. Um, I think everybody at first thought it was a joke, <laughs> but I brought back my bacteria 
And the most in- interesting thing at that festival was seeing how the other volunteers were using them to explain scientific concepts. And that for me, more than an inspiration, it really was a little bit of an aha moment of like, oh, there might be something here. So then I started posting them on social media. I created a thing, it's called Micro Monday. So originally it was every week. I, In retrospective, I regret doing anything that was supposed to be weekly because that's a lot of work. Um, but that's how I started. Um, and then the next thing that happened, which eventually leads to me publishing this article and working specifically in the space of multilingualism, is that as I posted more things, one of my cousins in Colombia told me she loved what I was doing, but she couldn't understand it. And so that left me to do a lot of introspection on a little bit of what you were saying before, Cindy, about, hey, I've spent all this time speaking in English and I think I've stopped, I've lost that perspective of the barriers that that can create for people who don't speak English. Um, and so I started Micro Martes in my other account, Anarobias, where I did the same thing, but in, in Spanish. Um, and the more I worked in that account and the more I realized this was pre-pandemic, how few other people, other communicators there were on social media in Spanish. In the paper, for example, one of the things that we do is Google the word science in 11 of the most spoken languages in the world. And even when you normalize by number of native speakers, you will see that English is like by far and away, you see the most results. And so this points to the fact that English is overrepresented in both formal scientific communication and more informal means like in social media, in the news, in things like that. And so I reached out to my collaborator, Melissa, and I was like, hey, do you want to talk about our experiences as science communicators? She was one of the few other people that I knew was communicating science in Spanish. Um, she's even been on a, on an episode of Shark Week because that's that's her thing. She's a shark scientist. I know. That's why I was like fangirling. And when she said yes, because it was just a DM, I was so excited. And then we wrote this piece that was really based on our experiences, things we had observed. So different barriers, for example, the fact that um, a lot of journals, scientific journals, don't even allow you the option to submit a version of your paper in another language. And even if they did, the burden would fall on the author. And so so we suggested things like maybe leveraging AI. Well, now this makes a lot of sense now with all these AI tools that can easily translate things. We talked a lot about training people, incentivizing people to um, present their work in their native tongue and not just English. Um, and we never imagined that so many people, that this would resonate with so many people. I mean, the first round of reviews that we got back for this paper were brutal. <laughs> we basically had to rewrite the whole thing. And when it came out in 2020, I also think it came out at the perfect time because it came out during the pandemic exactly when we were seeing when we were seeing the outcomes of everything being published in English and what problems it could generate in real time, right? Like we were seeing people trying to access scientific knowledge and not being able to. We were seeing different news people trying to reach out experts in their own countries, in their own languages. So I think all of these contributed to the paper kind of taking a life of its own and it resonating with so many people. I I joke because I think in probably about a year that's going to become my most cited paper and it has nothing to do with like technical expertise. And so, so it's been a very pleasant surprise. Well, but then it turns, it is the time for the university to start value this as scholarship, right? So this is a type of scholarship that is impactful, right? That is very aligned to the work that you're doing in terms of the technical, but uh, it is it is not our fault that it's not valued yet, right? Is that it has yeah. to become valued. Yes, and sometimes people think of it as more like my advocacy and I'm like, it is a literal scientific paper that is getting more citations than my other papers. So it is just as scholarly as any of my other publications. And and right, we, I feel like, especially in engin- the engineering identity is very strong. Like a lot of people identify so strongly with being engineers. And ever since my postdoc, as I mentioned before, where I dabbled in microbiology, in science communication, I just don't feel that as strongly anymore. And I'm like, well, can I think this, I'm actually kind of excited for it to be my most widely cited paper so that I have 
a more quantitative matrix to be like, hey, look, I can redefine myself and I can be more than one thing at the same time. That's really powerful, especially the people that wants to tra like transition to education research, right? I, 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 I recently passed through that crisis. Like I was feeling that I have to over-explain myself because I was no longer doing chemical engineering. I was no longer like being X, Y, and Z. And the reality is that you are who you are and you go where you have to do to make the impact with your craft and with the gifts that are given to you. So yeah, I, I, hopefully this community and this space can actually break those silos and we can start talking about social work, impact uh, from the engineering perspective because engineers have a special way of asking questions, but we need to recognize that this is scholarship too and to be able to get you know, funding or get uh, results out of this work, right? You need to have a scholarly mind when regarding to this work. Question for you in terms of the audience, because this is the audience is kind of like broad. <laughs> so how do you identify uh, communities and audiences that most need access to scientific information, particularly multi-languages, and what strategies do you use to reach them? Yeah, I think this is a really great question and it is a really hard question. Um, and it's one, I actually, I gave a guest lecture on this topic earlier this semester. When I started, uh, my answer to this has also evolved a lot in the last five years. When I started doing scientific communication, I feel like I wasn't really thinking that much about the audience, right? And I mean, this, this even makes sense considering the fact that like half the people who followed me were my family and friends from home and I didn't even think about oh, if I do it in English, are they going to, going to understand, right? Um, so when I started, it was really more about me, which, you know, I'm just being honest. It was really more about this is the thing I want to do. This is what I want to communicate, which is all of the literature in scientific communication and public engagement with science tells you that is not the that is not the best way to go about it. Um, so I think it depends a little bit. So I work a lot in social media and in social media, Yes, you can kind of try to target a specific community, but what, at least in my experience, what I think happens most often is you start creating content and without you realizing, probably again, because of your positionality, who you are and the kind of content you put out, you end up attracting a specific audience. So for example, 75% of the people who follow me on social media are women. And I, that was not a goal of mine. I think it's a cool metric now because right I'm an engineer and women are underrepresented in engineering so it works out okay but and and I did not set it out to for it to happen that way but it makes sense that it does because a lot of what I do is with crochet which is is a traditionally feminine art form and so but now that I know that that most of the people in my audience are women then I can start thinking about okay what do these women for the most part want to hear about, right? During the COVID-19 pandemic, I did a lot of, for example, took advantage of that interactive nature of social media to ask a lot of questions about what is it that people wanted to know more about, paid attention to comments, things like that. So that's really more like a social media type of approach. I think I work with different organizations and also my lab is starting to work with organizations in person. So for example, well, Cindy and I both work with an organization called Unidos Now in Southwest Florida. And so I think now, like modern 2023 me, um, I think the most important thing is to ask questions. So I arrived at Unidos now because people in the College of Engineering knew I wanted to work with um, Latinas in the state of Florida. And that's because we have a really high proportion of Spanish speakers in the state. And yet our college and our school doesn't really provide that many, that much content. We don't really interact with communities in Spanish a ton. Um, the College of Agriculture does a lot more of that, but in engineering, we really don't. So I, I knew that was a need. Um, I knew that was a need I was well equipped to meet. Um, but one thing that I wanted to do different this time is every time we work on anything with Unidos now, I just try to listen. So I just sit down with them, let them tell me, I ask a lot of questions. What are your, what are the characteristics of the students we're trying to hit this year that we are concentrating on with our programming? What are the objectives that they hope to see improve over the course of the year? So for next year, for example, I have my notes right here. The answers were team building, public speaking, confidence, problem solving skills. So then we can kind of tailor what we do to that. And that's also, I work with a different organization called Science Clubs in Colombia. 
And that's the approach we've taken with them too since the pandemic. I feel like the pandemic was really good for a lot of us to reassess how we were doing things. And so now we do the same there. So usually we have one person who goes to a new community that we want to reach. And then that person does like a reconnaissance trip. So then she talks to uh, teachers, students, community members, and learns more about the context that we're going to go in, the societal context, uh, any challenges in the region. Then we we brainstorm what types of clubs to bring in. So like what what makes the most sense. So for example, we work in an area of Colombia called Guajira, uh, which is in the Northern East, an indigenous community. And they, for example, go through really long periods of no rain. It's very dry. And so um, we have had clubs before that talked about water management and uh, water as a resource management. We've also had horticulture clubs to teach the students and the community, what types of plants grow in such an arid landscape. And so I think a lot of it is about asking questions. Um, I also think that often we try to go really far away beyond our spheres of influence. And I think usually the most impactful stuff is closer to us. So I've stayed really close to my identities as a Colombian and as a Latina, also because it's important to me to give back. Um, But yeah, I think the coolest the coolest um, public engagement projects I've, I've ever seen are from people who take something they're personally interested in and then they build from there. So I have a friend who, or really more a colleague who loves to run. And then she started doing all of these public advocacy, science policy and science communication stuff in running clubs. And so that's that, that would be some of my advice on how to identify the community. And uh, something very important that you're mentioning is this idea that, I mean, when we I have been in meetings, people say, oh, we're going to do outreach to the general public. So what you said, right, this idea that people like try to separate themselves. Right, we are the academics, the 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 stewards of all of the knowledge in the world and the community is there waiting for us to deposit that knowledge. And I think what you're saying basically is you need to learn from your community. The community has, you know, cultural wealth, they have, you know, knowledge, funds of knowledge, they have information that you need in order to make your communication more effective. Yeah. And you just mentioned something without, without thinking about it. You mentioned something really important. So the first thing that you mentioned is called the deficit model of scientific communication. And it's this idea that you're going to go to a community, that community is an em- or that person is an empty vessel, and you're going to dump all your scientific knowledge at them and they'll be full and they'll be happy. But obviously nobody is an empty vessel. Everybody comes to the world with preconceived notions, with needs, with political uh, allegiances, with religious beliefs, all and all of that influences how they see the world. And so I think, yeah, this the the more modern notion of science communication is more in this engaging of a community and this interaction between the person doing the communicating. You know, so, sometimes you know maybe even communicating isn't the right word, but you know, the lang- the language only allows you to express yourself so many ways. I know. So maybe on the same uh, line, right? So any other challenge that you have encountered uh, in making scientific information more widely accessible and any suggestions or strategy on how to address them? Yeah, I think several. We've already talked about some of them. So some of them is right about your work being perceived as being in addition to, but hey, you still got to do your main job that you were hired to do. And, And that is accompanied by sometimes lack of time. Um, and so you don't have a ton of time to devote to these things or as much time as you would want. I think that's a challenge. Um, sometimes it can be challenging to obtain funding. Um, this is one thing that I will say that I love about the National Science Foundation versus other programs is that you can incorporate a lot of these things into your NSF applications. And that's very different from a bunch of most other funding agencies. Oh, I think another challenge is that sometimes you might have really big ideas, but you don't know how to execute them. And so a solution to that and something that I'm leaning more and more, right? I started as a science communicator, more like solo. I just teach people this thing about microbiology alone. And I find that increasingly with time, I'm starting to lean more into collaborations. And so I think you can get a lot more done as a group, right? So for example, people in engineering education can help a lot with design and assessment, um, if let's say you want to do something with art, but you yourself are not an artist, you can collaborate with artists. 
Um, of course, there are people, communicators who are experts, right? Professionals in communication who are experts and can help you with that too. And then there's, of course, the members of the community who can also help you enter that community and can help facilitate interaction. So I think collaboration, it goes a long way. As we are trying to make this type of work more scholarly, do you measure the impact of your work, particularly democratizing access to this scientific communication? Can you suggest any metrics? What is out there that you can share with us on what uh, the people in the SciComp community is doing right now? Yeah, this is a this is a great question, one that I've been thinking about a lot <laughs> recently as I work on a few things, papers and grants. Um, there are a variety of methods. The more traditional ones are things like how many people attended your talk or how many people are seeing your stuff on social media, how they're engaging, commenting, uh, liking, sharing. All of those are kind of more quantitative. Um, however, all of those metrics sometimes can be very surface level. So, it's, you know, doesn't really reflect what impact you might have had on the person. And so other approaches that people use are pre and post surveys that can evaluate anywhere from a paper I recently read um, where they had used a game to teach people about nanotechnology. In that game, for example, they measured one knowledge related to nanotechnology. So you could assess content as a scientific content, but also your perception. So in that case, for example, they were doing surveys to try to understand if people's perception of the safety of nanotechnology had changed or not changed. So you can also do surveys to see uh, changes in perception. You, of course, also have to keep in mind that all of these outcomes and assessments are going to change if your thing is a one-off interaction versus like a recurring type thing where I might think there might be bigger gains. Um, in Science Clubs Colombia, we've been playing around a lot with um, qualitative uh, work. Um, and this is really work that's led by in, so Science Clubs Colombia is an organization that puts together, um, in-person, very intensive workshops, one week workshops for children and young adults in Colombia, lately, really mostly rural areas of Colombia, where these children get to interact with two, um, scientists, scientists who are the instructors. And so before we did mostly pre and post surveys, but lately, yeah, we, we work in notes. So the education node has been experimenting with different uh, types of assessment. And so one of them is we're having the children write letters, letters to science, and then we can pull out little tidbits on how um, the clubs impact the way they see science. And also sometimes, not sometimes, a lot of the times the kids teach us other things, right? So there was recently a letter written by an indigenous um, child who was really con contrasting and kind of questioning uh, the fact that we always mention as science inventing or discovering things, but a lot of the things we're discovering is knowledge they already had in their community, in their indigenous ways of knowing. Um, and then focus groups. So lately, the, uh, we've also been conducting focus groups to kind of understand a little bit better the experience that our students are having. And then, of course, there are other um, kind of unexpected or even bigger measures of impact, like Cynthia mentioned, right? The fact that she's doing this podcast for me, it's like, wow, that's, that was kind of a really big impact of my work that I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it that way until you said it. In science clubs, for example, sometimes then we hear back later from the kids that later they studied biology, microbiology, math. They made it to the university and they credit our program as part of that journey. So I think listening to those, um, so, you know, sometimes I think that if you did an activity, a public engagement activity, and you changed or impacted one person's life, to me, that's good enough. You know, you don't, it doesn't have to be a thing that changes millions. Yeah. And I want to, I want to remind people that Anna does all of this, but she still have like hardcore disciplinary research, right? So she's doing all of this, trying to balance these two identities, right? Or this, this new identity, let's call it like, is this engineering professor identity that actually can speak and do education, right? Hopefully there are going to be many disciplinary faculty who are like you interested to do this. And you're mentioning that you, under, you understand your strengths in communication, but you also recognize your weaknesses. And those weaknesses, it seems like it's giving you the opportunity to collaborate with new people that understand social research methodologies. In the podcast, in the rest of the, of the, of the season, we're going to have 
people talking about qualitative method, mixed method, quantitative methods, and we're going to get deeper into that. But can you talk about those partnerships and collaborators and how those relationships have contributed to your efforts and the success of them? Yeah. So lately, um, I'm still looking, by the way, if anybody who's listening is an expert on evaluating social media approaches, I am still looking for a collaborator there because that is, I want to be a little bit more serious about evaluating the assessing uh, that part of my effort. Um, but yeah, lately I was invited last year. This is something that is really exciting to me. I was invited last year um, by Shulma Kukunua, who is an epidemiologist in Colombia. She was basically a leading epidemiologist in Colombia during the pandemic. She invited me to be part of this enormous team that's evaluating the way the Colombian government responded to the COVID-19 pandemic. So as part of the communications team that's specifically looking at the communication strategies, my role is to look at social media. And there I am working with social scientists and communicators who are teaching me so much about like different forms of expression. Even when you read a new story, what type of narrative they're using, all of that are aspects of communication that we're trying to pull out. Um, I think that, that, that has been fascinating. In my work, I'm also involved with the Inclusive Science Communication Symposium. Oh yeah, which is something I forgot to say before. So in that symposium, which happens every two years, and it's an opportunity for students, uh, professionals, practitioners of science communication, people who want to do science communication and researchers to all come together and kind of share strategies to make scientific communication inclusive. Uh, this year, we have two themes that are super relevant to everything we're talking about. Uh, language matters, that is both in terms of multilingualism, but also in terms of, for example, gender language, um, ableist language, um, the words that we use that might exclude or include people. And then the second thing, which I'm personally really excited about, because that's another community where I think I always learn a ton, um, is metrics of success. So how do we redefine metrics of success? And how do we especially come up with metrics that will still convince funders and institutions that what we're doing is valuable? And so that community has also been really important for me to learn about different things and also to challenge. Every time I go to Inclusive Psychom, it's it's like a challenge to yourself to be like, okay, I'm doing okay, but I can always do better. What can I learn from these other people? How can we collaborate um, like I mentioned, even the paper on multilingual science communication, I didn't write that alone. I just reached out to a random person because I knew she had more experience than me in communicating in other languages. You are doing this in, in this conference, but I, I wish that we can also talk about these issues in engineering education communities, like how can we evaluate impact? And, and again, we're going to have people talking about impact uh, and how to measure it in different uh, contexts. But if we want to have this duality of being an educator, a scientific communicator, but at the same time going through the regular process of academia, right? We need to make sure that we become scholars of communication, that we collaborate with people that can actually collect data and measure all of the good things. That is, this is just not a side project. This is more than that. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. Well, one at the personal level, because it's important for my career development, right? I have a colleague, Rachel Burns, who's a fellow science communicator. She always says we need to researchify SciComm. And so like, right. And not to say that people aren't already doing that, because of course, people who are doctors in communication are already doing that kind of work. Um, but we can also collaborate with them and train ourselves to be a part of that. Um, and the the other thing I was going to say is that, for example, in my discipline, biomedical engineering, which is so a really big example of that with vaccines and the COVID-19 pandemic, I strongly believe that science communication hasn't really played at all a role in, bio, in, the, in our discipline in biomedical engineering. But if we think about the types of technologies people are developing in labs right now, technologies that involve gene editing, technologies that involve stem cells, technologies that involve nanotechnology, all of those things. Um, we AI. AI, right. We need to start doing all of that work now, because if not, we're going to have vaccines 2.0, where like, we are going to start talking to people about them by the time they need to use them tomorrow. And to me, that's too late, because then Right then now we're entering into a political and other realms and we, we didn't take the time to explain 
and make sure they understand all of the nuances of all of these. So me personally, I think that just like health communication, like physicians and doctors understand that that is crucial for the success in the clinic. I wish we did more of that from our technology engineering perspective. And I, I think this connects with the next question. So how do you envision the future of scientific communication and accessibility? And I mean, what role do you see in your work in this evolving landscape? Yeah, so I that's a great question. I think in the future, what I what I hope is that we're continuing to lower barriers of access to scientific information, leveraging whatever tools at our disposal. Um, that includes social media, right? The nice thing about social media, like I said, is everybody has a phone on their pockets. I also think there's a lot of misinformation going around, so we need to counteract that where it's at. And in terms of inclusion and, ac and accessibility, I, I really hope we can continue to evolve our the way we communicate, even the way we teach, so that we're using language that is closer to whatever communities, whatever people we're trying to reach, um, so that we don't create linguistic barriers between ourselves as academics, as engineers, as scientists, and the other people that we are uh, trying to reach. I, that is that is a big hope for me. And uh, I hope my contribution in a few years is about continuing this conversation and these contributions of understanding how we can use scientific communication to kind of have more people engage with biomedical engineering. I mean, I feel like engineering education and biomedical engineering have a lot of things in common. For example, nobody really knows what they are. <laughs> and so that that is that is a really important role that sci like science, if you think about it, communication can play a really strong role in recruiting more people to a profession. <laughs> and so I, I think all of that will be crucial to the future of both of our disciplines. <laughs> That's fantastic. I appreciate that. And I hope that this podcast can contribute to that future and I am going to be trying to do scholarly work here too and trying to see if we can share, you know, this work uh, in a sense that, you know, how podcasts can also become this uh, venue of communicating with more people and, and, and different languages. So I appreciate all of the efforts that you're doing. So before we kind of like close uh, the podcast, I want to know any exciting project, anything that is coming up next that you want to share with us that you're happy about? Yeah, I well, I already shared one, which was on the uh, evaluating the COVID nineteen the way COVID nineteen was communicating. But one that I'm really excited about that will start in the fall is I teach a class called Global Health in Biomedical Engineering, and this fall um, I created that class from scratch last fall. It was a success. Um, one of the learning outcomes in that class was to develop kind of intercultural communication skills, and when I took my syllabus to the director of learning at our um, international center here at UF. The first thing Paloma, Paloma is her name and she's amazing. The first thing Paloma said to me was, Anna, you do know you're never going to reach this goal. The way you're teaching this class, I love you, but you're never going to reach this. <laughs> she told me with a lot of love and she was right, right? That was more an aspirational goal um, because of course, like my students for the most part were really just Right. Unless for some reason I ended up having a ton of international students and a ton of different people in my class, they were really mostly going to be talking to each other and maybe occasionally to our, my guest speakers. So Paloma then told me about virtual exchange. And so virtual exchange, which is called other names at other universities here at UF, it really means uh, rather than physically going somewhere else and studying abroad somewhere else, you kind of bring the international work to your classroom by partnering with a faculty member in another university and then your students work together towards some goal. So in my case, I'm going to be working with a professor in Colombia at Universidad Javeriana, Daniel Suarez Vanegas, and he's teaching a very similar class on biotechnology for global health. So my students and his students in both of our classes, they're going to be developing, there's going to be this capstone project at the end of the class where we dis they design an engineering solution to a global health problem. So what we're going to do is my students are going to design a solution for a problem in rural Colombia, and his students are going to design a solution for um, rural populations here in the United States. And the part where they're going to work together, it's going to be for a period of about five weeks. They're going to work together to help each other identify the problem and brainstorm the first the first idea, we'll then take it from there and help them craft their final idea. 
um, but they're going to be interacting asynchronously. Synchronously, we're going to use a lot of technology tools. Um, and I'm excited because I, I think Paloma was right. This will get us closer to them actually developing competencies to communicate across cultures. So because they'll be having to navigate all of the things that I mentioned last semester, um, but in real time, right? So I'm navigating time zones, navigating differences in culture, linguistic differences, etc. I know that this resources, I, I, we recognize that not everybody has this uh, privilege of having these amazing resources, but if you do these centers, they even know how to collect data that you can publish. So I, I am already seeing a paper on the development of the course and another paper on the actual data that you collected between all of the universities. Uh, this project is amazing. I mean, as always, I'm always following Anna, whatever she does, like, she's here my inspiration and I hopefully I can do that because if you plan to do a sabbatical in many years if you plan to get in my case I want to do a Fulbright scholar at some point in my life that is a good opportunity to meet people professors in other universities that you can have that besides the research you can also do the teaching part uh, when you do your visit so I look forward maybe in another podcast I can have you in another episode to just talk about this yeah, I think maybe after we implement it, and I can tell you, everybody always says the first time is a little bit of a train wreck. So maybe after the first time, I can be like, I can tell you my good success stories and my horror stories. <laughs> to kind of like close off the conversation. So what advice or recommendation will you offer to those who are just starting their careers as engineering professors? but they also have this passion for education. Yeah, I think my first advice is when I first, first, first started, a lot of people, I feel like a lot of people advise me to wait to do things. So more like get settled, wait to do things. And that's true. I do think your first semester, you just need to like kind of go with the routine, figure out what you're doing because it's like jumping in the ocean and not knowing how to swim. But I think... um one of the things that I did my first year that, uh, you know, I should start doing more is I took, I went to info sessions. I went to talk to random people. I asked random people for coffee. And that way I started learning more about what was available at UF. So then I learned, I was, I participated in a lot of stuff at the UF International Center. I mean, in that case, it happened to be one of the reasons why I came here. I was a global fellow in the global fellows program. They told us about virtual exchange among other things. So then I started learning, okay, we have an infrastructure to do these types of things. So then I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. Um, the other thing is your teaching centers. I know most people have, right? Some teaching centers are more better resource than others, but I think at most universities now, you have some sort of source of professional development as a teacher. I strongly encourage you to participate in that. You will learn so many. I learned a lot of techniques that helped me with both my undergrad and grad class. Um, and I think you should, you know, of course you need to keep your time in balance so don't get too excited too fast. Um, but I think you should just pursue things that excite you and pursue things that are different, right? Like, yes, not, not everybody, I think this is going to be the first time anyone in my department tries to do a virtual exchange. And there aren't even that many virtual exchanges in the College of Engineering. But if you look at the mission of both my department and our College of Engineering, both of them mention global learning and international reach. Um, and so you can also kind of sell yourself as like you're doing things to further the mission of the university um, while doing things that you're passionate about. And, and I think I also think that a lot of things about promotions, tenure, getting jobs is about how you sell your story. So I think if you stay true to yourself, you will eventually, it will all eventually fit, right? This is, I'm also telling this myself, so I'll believe it. <laughs> but eventually this will all, right? It will all fit. It is all part of your personal narrative and um, and it will be okay, right? Like even when I was a postdoc, a lot of people were like, oh, why are you spending so much, so much time on science communication and public engagement? And then it turned out that when I went on faculty interviews, that was actually a thing a lot of people wanted to talk about. And so, because it was a differentiator, it was something so radically different from what other people were doing. Yeah, the conversation here is not to the audience to say, you have to do this in education. No, you know, 
you, I mean, I was a teaching faculty and I now I'm on tenure track and I realized that being a professor is a spectrum, right? Yeah. So you have the opportunity to invest as much time as you want into, you know, research, service and uh, teaching, depending on the role that you have, right? If you're a teaching faculty, you can actually invest more time in teaching and service and you do your scholarship of teaching and learning. If you're a researcher, right, there's different phases so you can start slowly building that, uh, you know, competencies in the other areas that you're passionate about. People like to do service and they like to serve in committees and the Senate and things like that. And that is important and value. Right. But what we're saying is that if you're interested in education, right, uh, there's a way of doing it. And Mary, right, your passions about teaching yeah. and your research. Yeah. And like you said, I really like what you said, because I feel like that has been my approach. Like I am. I know I need to be concentrated primarily on my research and that's what my students spend most of the time doing. Um, but I also know I have all these bigger goals. So, but I don't have the time that I want to devote to them. So I start small, like the first workshop we did with Unidos now was a one day thing. Then it's like slowly evolving and I'm letting it go slowly because I know I just don't have the time. Um, but also I can bring in collaborators to help. And if, especially if you're a technical person who has the privilege of having a lab and students, you can also leverage your students' interests, right? So like the project I mentioned in Colombia with um, studying the impact of social media, I'm not the one who's going to analyze the data. I have an undergraduate student who has an interest in science communication who's helping me with that. Even the workshops with Unidos now, it's one of my graduate students is super interested in developing workshops. She has amazing ideas. And so I, right, I can help, provide them with opportunities to build those skills. And at the same time, we can get more work together, more work done together. So it all, I feel like that's also, you know, that also has been a lesson as a, as a new professor is learning to delegate more, delegate and collaborate more. Yeah, that's a great advice. And students, and there, if you like it, there's students that are going to like this too. Like we don't have to be ex cookie cutter professors, like whatever, whoever make the definition of what an engineering professor is, you know, there's, we are kind of like breaking those boundaries and allowing the students to persist by seeing you, right, doing this type of thing. So I think for the last question that I have, I mean, I am, I know Anna since the moment that she came here for her first interview, like I, she's amazing, you know, she's do amazing things. Everything that she does is with passion. She also have, have a personal life. She's has friends and family comes over and she loves to read an avid reader. Uh, she likes to swim. Like, I mean, it's not that she has all of her life figured out, but what I'm saying is that she tries very intentionally to have balance in her, in her life. So I wonder what tools, software or resources or strategies you can recommend for professors to be more effective at their work. Right. I feel like in the spring, I really sucked at this. Honestly, I was very bad at it. I didn't have a ton of balance. The I kind of fell behind on my teaching and then that kind of took over my semester. And as a result, I fell behind on my grant writing. I wasn't great at it. So I think one really important tool that I try to do, and I think I actually learned this from Cindy and from our other colleague, Dr. Erica Moore, who are very good about reflecting regularly. So like I reflect a lot during my... Uh, at the end of every semester, at the end of every month, at the end of every week, and try to figure out what I can do better. Um, and then another tool I use a lot is reading. So I've been a, like you mentioned, I've been an avid reader since I was very little. Um, and I, and I think, you know, a lot of people, when they ask me what my hobbies are, I almost never say I read because to me, reading is not a hobby reading i am i am a reader like it's part of my of who i am with my identity i realized that this year and um i read every night before bed it's something that i promised myself i would keep doing ever since i finished my phd that year i read zero books i was very bad and um i read every day to kind of shut down and i have a whole evening routine i like wash my face and is it's this way of like calming myself down and like getting myself in the mood um as far as productivity at work 
Um, one thing that I've used, two tools that I've used a lot are Pomodoro, the Pomodoro technique. So working, and I do 35 minute blocks. So working intensely for 35 minutes, then five minute break, 35 minutes, five minute breaks. That helps me a lot. And then um, kind of support from other people. So I have a writing group on Wednesdays that is actually composed of four Colombian faculty in biomedical engineering. Um, and I think that, I mean, generally speaking, that support from other colleagues and from family and friends has been has been crucial. Although, honestly, I feel like I'm still figuring it out. Every semester, I feel like I get a little bit better at balance, a little bit better. <laughs> well, Dr. Porras, Ana, gracias a lot like thank you so much for your time and this amazing conversation for your scholarship for your caring for the students for your caring for your colleagues uh for impacting so many people that i know that sometimes it doesn't feel that you do but i just want to let you know that you do so i'm really thankful for having you in my life uh in my academic life well, thank you for the invitation i am honored to be here as your first guest and i am so excited to hear and continue learning with all the other guests in the podcast oh my goodness thank you for joining us for this first episode ever with dr ana maria porras i have learned so much i have learned so much that i am doing this podcast thanks to the you know, inspiration that she's bringing to the scientific communication community. So remember, this podcast was recorded also in Spanish. So you may see this in your feed of your favorite podcast platform. We also have both interviews in English and Spanish uploaded in our YouTube channel. So you can go there and see it and watch it with subtitles in the language of preference. Well, and before we go, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Engineering Professor Speaks Education podcast. I am so glad you're here as we build together a community that uplifts the experiences of practitioners and scholars in engineering education at any stage of their careers. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to support us more, this is what you can do. Leave us a review on your favorite platform. Your reviews help others discover this incredible community. Spread the word and share this podcast with your colleagues, students, or even your social media followers. By doing so, you contribute to the growth of our community. Stay connected with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, or YouTube. Follow us to engage with our content and stay updated on the latest episodes and discussions. Don't forget to check out the show notes. You'll find valuable resources and information about our guest speakers there. Finally, if you have any suggestions or ideas for future episodes or speakers, we'll love to hear from you. Fill out our feedback form and share your thoughts. This podcast is intended to provide informative and thought-provoking content to our listeners. The opinions and viewpoints expressed by the hosts and guests on the program and website do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers or funding agencies. This podcast was created and produced by me on my free time. The music you have been enjoying is courtesy of Rod Dog by Mr. Smith and Cartel the Funk by Ketza. These tracks are licensed under attribution non-commercial non-derivative 4.0 international license by Creative Commons.